Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by a living legend in the property sphere and the political arena, Mr. Stephen Norris, who is chair of Soho Estates. He's on the board of more companies than we've got time to mention, but he's also, very interestingly for regular listeners to this podcast, chairman and one of the founders at Future Build, uh, a very exciting MMC driven contractor Stephen great to see you good morning good morning um, Andrew and uh, I, I mean obviously the first question we have to ask is how many garden parties have you been at yeah, over the last sad. 18 months how sad my invitation must have got lost in the post I'm NFI afraid. but there we are yeah yeah no I mean um, as we are talking about garden parties uh, you know I've never been a massive fan of the current uh, Prime Minister I were probably too close with him when he was Mayor, I was on the TFL board, on the mm. development agency board. Uh, we would see him, frankly, pretty regularly. And I simply you know, knew a guy who uh, never really read the papers, the official papers, probably always read the broadsheet papers, of course, read them assiduously. But um, when you're a minister, when you're mayor, particularly when you're prime minister, when you're mm. holding one of the great offices of state, it's a hard job. You have to get down and do the hard yards. You have to read the material that's in front of you. You can't delegate. Boris's great trick when he was mayor was constantly to delegate, whether mm. it was to, you know, Simon Milton, the, the late, great Simon, well, who, yes, who, who we all miss, um, yep, or whether it was, uh, you know, Ed Lister or any of the other people, several in the government now, people like Kip Malthouse, Stephen Greenhouch. Yeah. You know, these people took the burden on their shoulders. Um, I, my own contribution was fairly minor in comparison with them. But you've got the image of somebody who... I th I've thought he's one of those people who's probably so intellectually bright that he becomes quite intellectually lazy because he knows he can always get out of a typical situation with a quip or with a line or he'll skate over the paper and have a pretty reasonable interpretation of it. You remember that business where he managed to roughly understand what that poor woman in Iran was actually doing when she was there showing her, you know, her child to its grandparents yeah, yeah. and managed to probably give the Iranians excuse to use her as a hostage, yeah. you know, for several years afterwards. Now, that sort of thing um, of itself, well, people make mistakes in life, you can forgive that. But if it's a pattern of behaviour, well, then I think people have to take it seriously. And to be honest with you, I think this latest business with the party, ah, you know, I think that's the kind of thing that can kill a political career. I think it's really interesting, you know, because um, he always sees himself as a sort of sub-Churchillian, um, wrote a book about Churchill, which, you know, from which that was an evident uh, conclusion. And I heard somebody on the radio just the other day say the real issue is, of course, Churchill was a man who won the war, call it, if you like, in this case, Brexit, mm. but didn't win the peace. Um, and I think that's actually precisely the point. The hard yards of governance are very, very difficult. Um, and any prime minister bears a burden which I, as uh, you know, a, a junior minister, um, could appreciate. It's tough in government. You've got to do the job properly. Otherwise, you'll get yourself into terrible trouble. And we're seeing this over and over and over again. I think, to be honest with you, the party is now, the parliamentary party, is now in a position where they may well say, 
time for someone else. But people have been saying that for over a year now, haven't they? Been well, they have. That. And I mean, that's, that of itself is quite interesting because you know, I, at one level, you see foreign diplomats, uh, some of whom I know in France and in the US and one or two other places, who say, who is this guy? Doesn't he know what a comb's for? Uh, doesn't somebody tell him the suit <laughs> he's got doesn't actually fit? Um, you know, I mean, what is he? Is he some kind of clown? I mean, you know, he was always, and of course, there's always that sense of joie de vivre about uh, about Boris, which you can't deny. And I'm sure I'd much sooner have uh, supper with him than with Keir Starmer. But we're not looking for comedians; we're looking for serious people. And I think that murmuring uh, among Tory backbenchers is now a large shout, and it's saying, for God's sake, just let's move on. And mm. if we can't move on without changing the leader, well, you know, I was in Parliament at the time when we took a view of a far greater leader, that she had become more of a liability than an asset. Not oh, everybody oh, agrees with that. What was, what was the hair that broke the camel's back there in the 90s? It was when in my rock-steady, uh, rock-safe Tory seat with a 20,000 odd majority, we were getting what we call TBW on the doorstep, that bloody woman. You know, Margaret had come to believe her own hype. She'd become detached from the ordinary people of this country who she so brilliantly understood when she took over the leadership of the party. Mm. And when she so brilliantly, you know, used that kind of just life experience to deliver the massive changes to this country, very many of which I think um, would have been marvellous changes um, that, uh, you know, had sadly by then long faded from the memory. And you mm. just had to say, no, not again. We were facing the election in 1992, which we believe we would have lost. And so we changed the leader. It doesn't matter whether we're right or wrong. The fact is, when the party believes that the current leader will lose the next election, you change the leader. And, you know, my view is, if you're in one of those red wall seats, frankly, if you're in quite safe Tory seats, when Cheshire and Amersham can go and North Shropshire can go, yeah. and it's all around one person, well then, time for a change. And in terms of the parliamentary party and backbenchers, that they seem to have pretty much killed off most of the proposed planning reforms that, again, we've also seem to have been talking about those for a good year or four or five now, but they seem to have been dumped down the back of the sofa, don't they? Well, you know, um, Peter Bill, who's a journalist I hugely respect, used to be editor, I think, of Building Magazine and writes regularly for Property Week and for AG. I uh, wrote a piece in Property Week a couple of months ago now saying here are the technical reasons why mm. the reforms which were introduced, of course, by Michael Goh's predecessor, who's now disappeared into the ether of the backbenches, a very angry man, why they won't work. And I wrote a piece the next week saying... Peter's told you the technical reasons why these won't work. I'll tell you the political reasons why they won't work. And the answer is because, essentially, about the only real power a local authority member has these days... Is to stop stuff. ...is planning. I'll be more generous. It's planning. To be able to shape <laughs> their community. And, of course, what that means, because they know who elects them... Mm. Um, that they tend to be much less sympathetic to development. Somebody said NIMBY is the most natural, understandable human emotion that there is, and I actually think that's probably right. Most of us like 
the surroundings we've got, or at least don't want to change them, unless it's so demonstrably in our interest for them to be changed. Yeah. You know, natural reaction is to say, please go away, go somewhere else. But this is something that you've been on the thick end of in Soho, isn't it? Because again, that's exactly what what's which pushed back against the alfresco dining, for example. It's been one of the brilliant. Yeah. shining lights of, of or yeah. glimmers of light out of this miserable last couple of years. Oh, I, I mean, I think the Alfresco dining in Soho, which John James, incidentally, chairman of uh, chief executive Soho Estates, brilliantly um, sort of led and, and was the great driving force behind. Yeah, and shout out to John. Do, do have a listen to the, the podcast we had last summer with, with John James. Um, it's a great listen. I, I needless to say, listen myself to make sure he didn't <laughs> say anything that I didn't agree with. Yeah. But uh, no, he's brilliant. But, Terrific but, but, but I mean, Westminster's a great example. Westminster Council with their infamous mound that, that's oh. got lots more ridicule thrown at, at, at Oxford Street over the last yeah. few months. But it's a great example of, of nimbyism in action. I worry very much about Westminster Council because, you know, Westminster is an absolutely unique part of the United Kingdom. It's not your average local authority. It's home to the sovereign. It's home to parliament. It's home to more grade one listed buildings than any square mile anywhere in the world. It's a massive heritage asset. Mm. And it's clearly a place where literally millions of people come and go uh, doing their daily work and then going back to a more affordable part of London perhaps to live. And I'm afraid I think the current administration is obsessed with the idea that somehow, you know, Labour are going to take over Westminster and then, well, goodness knows what they'll do, but they probably wouldn't agree to do the mound. I think the key for me is when I heard the current leader and indeed her predecessor, the current MP for the two cities, saying the great motto for Westminster was for the many, not the few. And I thought it'd be a bit rude to actually remind them that that was Jeremy Corbyn's slogan. But, you know, apparently what this actually translates as, we are more concerned about the views of a handful of residents than we are about the health of the economy of Westminster, mm. which, of course, goes way beyond just Westminster itself. Generates. I mean, some would say the Tories have stolen quite a lot of Labour policies, so oh. I'll take a couple of slogans as well. I'm all for stealing uh, other people's clothes if they fit me better than them. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think we ought to be just clear. I'm not saying that we ignore residents. That would be quite wrong. But you have to set the interests of residents in the context of the overall needs of the economy. And the economy in a place like um, Soho, the, the amount that it generates of net tax contributions to yeah. the Exchequer for a very, very limited piece of real estate in London, in the whole of Soho is probably no more than about 100 acres, you know, is quite disproportionate. And mm. I just think that it is time that Westminster Council recognised that their primary duty is to preserve one of the most precious places in this country, which is effectively mm. Westminster. And, you know, the, I'll tell you something else. In the local Westminster plan, um, there's a specific ban on any res new residential property of more than 200 square metres. Well, you know, 200 square metres is hardly a mansion. I mean, it's what? I mean, it's sort of 2,300 2 square feet, something like that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. what the are we talking about here? I mean, you know, I would have thought that in Westminster of all places, if somebody says, actually, I quite like three or 4,000 square feet and I've got plenty, you know, I've, I've got a site that can take it, why on earth not? It was sort of, it's as if they, it's one thing to steal other people's clothes, but if you're trying to sort of literally 
take their cloak and wear it, the danger is you might start talking like them. And mm. I just very much hope they remember that their principal duty is to protect Westminster. In fact, I've, I think one of the solutions we probably ought to be thinking of, given that the other great city that the current MP represents is City of London, is that we take both of those and put them into a special administrative area. You know, they sort of protect that central yeah. area, like the Kremlin in Moscow and Red Square and, you know, I, I, the White House and or so we'll on. Or just have a City of London Corporation for the West End. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. What, what, I mean, what needs to happen with the rest of Oxford Street? Because in many respects, uh, and we've, I've been talking about this with John James, Soho Estates, and Brian Bickle from Shaftesbury and, and, and others um that, that we know and work with and to some extent the great estates have have relatively speaking had a pretty good crisis you know they've come together that the whole ethos of stewardship has really shone through but if you look then against you compare soho you compare all the amazing work that cadogan have done in chelsea and you compare that to oxford street it, it's just this light and day there what, is light and day. Um, what, what, what needs to happen? I mean, and part of that, you know, as, as previous transport minister, is, is, the, is the transport element. Again, yeah. the, the, the diversion of buses, the pedestrianisation yeah. of Oxford Street, something that, that yeah. we've all talked about, I've written about before. Well, I certainly think we could have done more um, between Marble Arch and Oxford Circus to actually take traffic out. The traffic that literally, you know, you can walk along the tops of the buses at certain times of day, uh, and it really does disfigure the whole area. It's less easy, incidentally, to do that from Oxford Street going east. But if you do take that area, they sort of, you know, they, they, as I say, Oxford Circus down to the mound, um, as we shall now have to refer to it, um, uh, then that's something where, frankly, I think Westminster Council, again, um, missed the boat. They were more interested in a few residents in Marylebone than they were in what is effectively, again, a very large national asset. I mean, the problem for me is um, that, or rather the challenge for me, would be not to build a mound from which I could look at traffic, how interesting. It would be to say, if we've got some money to spend on promoting Oxford Street, in other words, showing people the real benefits of it, let's show them something that on the one hand has got uh, Selfridges and, you know, which may now be uh, morphing into something even more upmarket, but it's certainly going to be mm. a very significant asset, all the way through to the Kiss Me Quick hat shops and the Princess Diana mask shops and God knows whatever else you see, um, the places where you can eat, the places where you can sit down and rest you know, turn it into something as, which is much more inviting than I think it currently is. Uh, the, the, one of the issues, of course, is a great more variety of ownerships in Oxford Street, which you don't see in the greatest states yeah. where you can legislate to a much greater degree. But no, I think, I think sadly, we, we missed the boat on that. I think Westminster Well, it's, it's almost, I mean, that, 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 again, that fractious ownership is, is a good point because that's essentially the problem that, that every high street across the country suffers from yes, this, exactly. you know, and this concept of, of, of turning, creating high street REITs where you can divvy out some shares, a great utopian idea. I remember, you know, discussing with Liz Peace when mm. we were working together some, some years back. And it's one of those things that various task forces have come out with, but it's, uh, I mean, there's clearly no silver bullet, but I mean, let's go back to discussions on, on planning because, Gove, uh, Michael Gove, Secretary of State uh, at uh, 
Deluck. I'm not sure yes. how you meant to pronounce it, but uh, that'll uh, do. It's uh, it will do for now until it gets changed again. Hopefully, by the time this recording goes out, it won't have been changed again. Uh, but yeah, when I come back in my next life, I want to be a government sign writer. I'm going to make a fortune. <laughs> you make an absolute fortune. But I, I, the, the the point of of of, of talking now, the uh, the leveling up white paper is expect, expected yeah. at the end of January. Yeah. What do you think? Gove's going to have to do. We, we've seen all of the stuff over the last few weeks around putting their hand in a pocket or in the developer's pocket to fix cladding. Mm. Uh, but there's clearly a lot more that needs to be done in terms of, of, of building the right number of homes and dealing with that little problem of the climate crisis, which seems to have been put into the back pocket of late. Mm. Uh, what would you be doing if you were Gove? Well, first of all, I'd be trying to assess what the real problem is. Uh, when I say problem, I mean that um, the current assumption is that there's a demand for 300,000 additional houses in the UK, or homes, I should say, in the UK each year for the foreseeable future. More specific analysis would suggest that that's actually a figure simply plucked from history because it's how many Macmillan actually delivered in the 60s. Uh, I think the more relevant figure is probably closer to 230,000 rather than 300,000. Mm. And I think there are parts of the country, Liverpool, my home city, where actually there is no need for additional houses. You probably need to put some money into regeneration and, you know, improvement of properties. But the idea of building new would be slightly odd i mean there's um you know you well the whole point about this need for additional accommodation is it needs to go in places where frankly people on normal average median salaries simply can't afford mm -hmm. and you know that means i'm afraid probably in areas where you would naturally also meet resistance but that's the that's the challenge and that's where of course to be fair, I, I think, you know, Robert Jenrick's idea of zonal planning was designed to overcome, but didn't do so effectively and was announced without any sort of reasonable consultation with local authorities who are the absolute key to the success of this or otherwise. So I think what Gove will do is he'll, first of all, not go for a big bang solution. He'll go for accretive change over time. He's made an interesting move on cladding, not strictly, of course, related to the housing numbers yeah. and planning issue. I'm not sure, incidentally, that that of itself is the answer because it's all very well saying, let developers pay. But in many cases, these buildings have been sold several times. The original developer who put the cladding on yeah. may very well not even exist anymore. But more to the point, even if they did, they would say, we went through a proper procurement process. We were told that these panels were perfectly safe to fit, and therefore we fitted them. And mm. telling us now that we're the fall guys is as bad as charging the current incumbents of these of these properties. You but simply do, do can't we need do it. To to, to reverse some of the stupid policy decisions that have been made in the past, such as the deregulation of building control? Oh, yes. I mean, I'm, I, I think there's a perfectly sensible role for focused uh, building control. I mean, the local authority should be the arbiter of what amounts to safe building. That's yeah. very different from getting planning consent to build. I mean, but once you have built, I mean, there are far too many examples of where properties have been bluntly mm. 
put up badly, even when the basic design was right, when the stage three, stage four drawings all look fine, mm. where basically the construction was a bodge and, and lives can be lost in circumstances like that. So I'm, I'm all for that. I think we all know that um, we're sort of getting slightly away from the issue of, of planning reform, which I'm, I'm going to come back to in a second. But I think just on this issue of cladding, I mean, the reality is that, for example, when Kensington and Chelsea Council decided to spend £10 million on Grenfell Tower, a place that people love living in, I mean, it's very clear from all the evidence before and, and, and since that actually people like them, Parker Morris standard rooms, great views, nice community, people got on very well. There's not this idea that, you know, this is a place where we threw the, the detritus of society. It turns out to be absolute rubbish. But the truth is that when they spent that 10 million on the, on the building, they were seeking to improve it even further, make it even more attractive. And they put on some cladding, which seemed to them to, you know, be a good investment. Of course they were unaware that actually this stuff which was sold as being, you know, fire-resistant was actually, a, you know, literally a time bomb. Mm. And when this spark from the fridge in the flat, which had the electrical short circuit, you know, da-da-da, the rest we all know with absolutely tragic consequences. So I think, you know, this is maybe one of those occasions where trying to trace back who the guilty people are will almost certainly, in a corporate sense, put their companies under if they have to, to escape from the, you know, the, the cost of, of compensation, where mm. the state will have to, in the end, step in and say, here is a grant which is available to every resident in a tower, you know, to be able to take the dangerous cladding off and put decent cladding on. Mm. Um, so, I mean, but Michael's done something which I think the Treasury will probably allow him to do in the short term, and at least it's a move in the right direction. It gives some relief to, to tenants. I think the more interesting issue, much more interesting and more, if you like, complex, is the planning issue, because NIMBY rules, because nobody represents those who don't have homes except the developer, who is clearly seen to just be a rapacious bastard who just wants to rip as much money as he can out of the deal and walk away. Yeah, yeah. So what, what is the solution there? Because, again, all of these things get politicised. You have groups like Generation Rent and some of these other mm. uh, other campaigners who it, it just becomes left versus right, doesn't it? It becomes like an American news Yes, in many ways it does. But I mean, I think one of the things that um, we should be thinking about is being much stricter about the point at which NPPF comes into play in the event that a local authority, for example, doesn't agree a sensible housing strategy. So that's I mean, when the local council disagrees with the national planning policy framework. That's right, framework. and just simply, you know, just simply doesn't join the party. Now, in theory, you know, the situation there ought to be if you haven't got a decent local plan which an inspector can approve as being reasonable and sensible and commensurate with your obligations, that uh, essentially there's then a free-for-all for developers. And that's a very, very considerable incentive for councils to actually deliver a local plan. It's outrageous that there are still local authorities, some Tory, incidentally, some Labour, some uh, no overall control or Lib Dem, that haven't got an extant approved local plan. And the, the genesis of this, after all, is going back to that issue of what is the number? 
it's not 300,000, probably closer to 230,000. Mm. Where should they be? Well, not just spread evenly across the country, because the problem isn't spread evenly across the country. It will be more focused in richer areas where it's currently very difficult for people to find any kind of housing. Yeah, but, but I mean, but on that, Stephen... And when you've got But in those areas, we're not... But, but, but the, the need there, and, and we're now seeing this in London over the last year, if you think how difficult it's been to get an Uber, how difficult it's been when you go into, you know, certainly where, where we live in North London, some of the gastro pubs that we didn't really go to for a late lunch on a Sunday, they're shutting up. I mean, obviously, these are very much first world problems. I can't get my overpriced roast on a Sunday. But the point I'm making is the reason all of these things are occurring, such as inability to get an Uber home for a, a Friday night out or whatever, when, you, when you've been you know, out in the garden in Westminster, it, it, it's often, it's a lack of workers. A lack of workers because we've, we've kicked out loads of people from the country. We can come on to that in a second. Uh, lack of affordability of housing. And it's now starting to bite. And, and what that means it's not people aren't necessarily needing four three bed terrace housing needing social housing otherwise yes, of the fabric that underpins you know this this economy in cities like london is going to fall apart yeah well that, that, that's a point of view i mean um i'll start by saying you um simply are incorrect when you say that anybody was kicked out of this country absolutely nobody was kicked out of this country some chose to leave the mm. vast majority have got there's settled a feeling status though, but there's a perception state. thing right? um, oh, well a perception which i don't share with you and that's yeah. rare because but, no, but, I'm sorry, I, but i'm not saying my perception i'm saying the perception among people if you speak to, to some cab drivers for example their, their oh, perception is cab absolutely. drivers of course are always right i mean uh, as, uh, <laughs> well, as we all know now look let's be serious about this of course a lot of this housing needs to be affordable and it's interesting that the affordable housing market of course has changed hugely over yeah. the last decade because you've seen the rise of the for-profit rhl you know the, the registered social landlord when yeah. the rsls have said well you know we know how to do this and we can actually do it and make a perfectly serviceable profit why mm. are we leaving it to these so-called not-for-profits which in many cases frankly i don't think are particularly efficient models of housing delivery but we were talking about planning reform and so before we leave it, we should just say yeah. that the real issue here is that, you know, every local authority should be an under, under an obligation to deliver a plan which, after it's argued its case, no doubt, with the department and with the inspectorate, is agreed to be the number of homes that that local authority needs to deliver over a five- or ten-year period. Can you and do that, And then there though? should be I mean, some that, real incentive behind them. Yes, of course you can. Of course you can. And what's more, it's done. Mm. The vast majority of local authorities do it. But there are those who don't. Mm. And that's where I think, you know, Gove will direct his attention. Uh, this, ironically, isn't part of levelling up. Levelling up's a very, very different agenda. Um, and as I say, in terms of additional housing... Well, lovely app is kind of whatever you want it to be, isn't it? Is it like is. It's an easy slogan, and you've got to be very clear what it does mean. But it certainly doesn't mean that we want to start you know, building uh, housing in places in the north where there is perfectly adequate housing, maybe, as I say, mm. needs more regeneration and refurbishment... It's a slight irony. I remember in Stoke-on-Trent some years ago, they tried to sell houses for a pound that were in a terrible state needed oh, massively. Yeah, they're doing that in Liverpool as well, not they? Yeah, they're 
couldn't sell them. And the reason they couldn't sell them was the cost of refurb was about 35 grand at the time, and the market rate was about 30. So even Robbie Fowler didn't So really. Yeah, so you ask yourself, why would I do this? You know. But going back to your point, as, as you've raised it, and I will not allow it to go unchallenged, <laughs> this idea that people have been kicked out of this country, presumably you mean as a result of Brexit, is just nonsense. The whole point is, if you wanted to stay here and you weren't a UK national, you simply apply for settled status, and you've got it. I mean, many, many, many people who worked here have got settled status. I mean, it's also true it's that some people though, went because, back. But, but when they're now talking about making you reapply for settled status every few years, and I say this as someone well, who's got a French wife. Yeah, it's uh, not so unreasonable. It's, I mean, it would, oh my goodness me, uh, I've been a French homeowner uh, for God knows nearly 30 years and then mm. suddenly find that um, apparently I can only visit my house for limited periods, apart from the fact that I'm funding half the local community. Uh, you can't drive through it now to Italy either, can you? Yeah, exactly. So let's not get too <laughs> excited about the fact that the UK now has simply got the right to invite who it wants and not yeah, who it has but, to. But, I, I'm, but I'm talking Did about... Did you know, the, for example, that uh, this last year... Um, over 30,000 foreign nationals were invited in to pick fruit in Kent. Uh, you know, it's always traditionally been a seasonal job, and those people can come from any country in Europe um, yeah. because there's a visa waiver. The great thing now is that the UK does control its own borders. It doesn't mean to say it has to shut them. That would be unbelievably mm. stupid. But there is a shortage of staff, whatever, oh, whichever yes. side yes, yes. of, of oh, that well, that's debate true, we for take. goodness sake. And um, it's, it's mostly that. That's, frankly, a combination mostly of COVID, but certainly of the fact that in Europe, for example, you know, 15 years ago, a Polish plumber, who incidentally, because he's gone through the, the regime in Poland, but also be a pretty good electrician and probably able to put your roof on as well, could earn massively more in the UK than he could back in Poland. That's simply not true now. Mm. Natural re, re-migration has taken place. People who've gone back to their home country speaking so, so, their own so language. What, what not can a we reason. do then to, to try and undo this or, or, or make it better? Are there things that we can do whether that's through planning and, and mandating that councils are delivering more social housing. Yeah. And that's not something that this current government's been particularly fond of. No, but that, I think, is where Michael Gove will go because that's where the demand is. That's where you need to see it. And, you know, it's very simple. If you can't afford, literally can't afford to rent or buy, then, you know, in this country, uh, the preferred solution is to build affordable housing, which local authorities will effectively... You know, so direct be, contracting, be, yeah, you think? Yeah, be the direct contractors yeah. for. And, uh, you know, at the current time, one of the real challenges for us strategically, and this is not something even Mike and Gold can think of in terms of the next three or four years, is that about a quarter of all the housing in this country, particularly in the south of England, where it rises to more like a third, is actually publicly subsidised. In other words, subsidised by taxpayers. Yeah. If you were to go to France, your wife will tell you that that's hardly ever the case. You know, accommodation varies from good to not very good to really not very good at all. But uh, the intervention of the state is substantially less, even in a country which is almost communist in the mm. way it approaches spending. Well, yeah. What What's your view then? I mean, what other things can we do? I mean, is there a case for 
making public transport free for people on particular tax bands, all of these other pressures that, again, can help. Well, I I remember Boris Johnson, when he was mayor, um, saying uh, quite correctly, people in London really love the bus system, which is not surprising, given that for 40% of them, it's free. I mean, how many people do you want to, you know, to to, to pay? Uh, It's an interesting question, however, because um, Luxembourg and Detroit are not natural bedfellows, one one of the richest little mini-states in the world and the other one of the poorest cities in the States. But they have one thing in yeah, common. My Amazon invoices come from Luxembourg. Yeah, do you, know, do you know one of the things they have in common? Neither of them charges for public transport. Yeah, yeah. Now, they do that because they think if we literally make it free, it'll keep traffic off the roads, it'll give people a greater incentive to seek work, and, you know, it's a great asset. Yes, you can do that. And the question, incidentally, of who pays, the user which is what most people's you know version of life would 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 agree with because mm. they'd say, well, hang on a minute, I don't use the bus. Why am I having to pay for somebody else to to, to use it for free? Uh, it's always been the case. Same on the railways. One of the things that the Cameron Osborne government did uh, during its time was to massively change the balance of who pays for the railways from the taxpayer to the user. Now that's completely consistent with a very straightforward philosophy that says the users should pay. Slight irony is it meant that every year you'd get that, you always get, it's kind of like Christmas, you get this thing where roving reporters wander around stations saying, what do you think of the latest fare hike? And people say, it's outrageous, you know. Ironically, it's got nothing to do with the poor old train operating companies, it's because the government has moved the goalposts. Now, many people say that we should probably reverse that. And Johnson, incidentally, would be one of the people People who would say it too, because he's clearly a natural big spender when it really comes down to it. Mm. But the reality is you always have to have these things at balance. In London, the system is already, the bus system alone is already supported to the tune of around £500 million a year. That's a huge amount. But as I say, 40% of the people on those buses don't pay. When I go home from this interview, I won't pay on public transport because I'm old enough not to. Actually, if they were to say, but you could afford to have your chauffeured Rolls Royce, couldn't you? I'd say no, because I <laughs> you know, can't stand them. But for what it's worth, <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, the no, point I, is, I, I, this yeah. idea of saying, well, make it free, make it free. Nothing's free in this life. It's a question of whether I pay through my taxes or I, or, or I pay when I step on the activity that I'm on at use. And in most cases, I think people don't think it's unreasonable to pay for a bus ride. Mm. Well, before we go, let, let's talk about uh, let's talk about one of your business future build. Um, mm. MMC has been something that we've come in and out of repeatedly in the four years that we've been producing propcast and, and bosscast episodes, and, and we've had all sorts of different people talking about this um, from Homes England government, Mark Farmer, who, who we used to work with, and, and other people like that. So, so tell us about what you're doing. Steve. Well, what we're doing, uh, our approach is to use like-gauge steel, like-gauge steel to build the frame, but because, you know, we also believe that people have to see the product and believe it, we actually build the whole thing to PC. I mean, we, we do the whole job. We don't just 
supply frame. Uh, the so point to about design the, build business a fully yeah, yeah. So when when you when you get a house from us yeah, or a, an apartment from us or a hotel from us or a, um, whatever it might be a student block you you get it absolutely complete as you would from any conventional contractor. Point about Lightgate Steel is that itself is it's a it's a recycled product. It's eighty five percent recycled. Um, we don't generate steel. We don't have to forge new steel. We're using pre used steel, and of course the product itself is a recyclable. Because we use a system where we're effectively constructing our frames off-site, we don't actually uh, have any of the issues that affect many versions of modern methods of construction, which is what we call the volumetric problem, where when you've completed your house in a factory or whatever it might be, you're using up a huge amount of, of, of carbon just simply to move a lot of air around the roads of this country, getting from where it was manufactured to the site. Yeah. We don't do that. We will deliver the steel. The steel will come from where the steel itself is cut, literally in the form of rods virtually. And we could put, for example, sufficient to build the frame of at least a dozen homes on one truck, one truck. It then goes to a local satellite, which is close to where the actual yeah. um, uh, development site is, and it's subassembled there, taken to the site and fitted. So, you know, in short order, because, you know, I could bore our listeners, the, the listener, even more rigid if I were to go into the detail. The fact is that this is a cleaner process. It's a quieter process. It's actually a much quicker process, which is not only good for local people who have to put up with with construction, well, yeah, but it's also NIMBYs. very, very, well, yeah, absolutely. It's also very good for investors because it means the IRR of the process yeah. is much greater. So and it's much greater. And what kind of time, time frame are you talking? Because the traditional, the, a lot of the volumetric firms would say we're twice as quick. Yeah, they, they, they would. And if we date it from the point at which, if you like, the order is given, or you go date it from the point at which you first get to site, which is possibly more relevant, it's about the same. Um, we will have a roof on in a matter of a couple of weeks. It's the kind of thing of a conventional home. It's the kind of thing that uh, Huff House have been doing for a long time. Uh, the German, very much glass houses, beautiful things, actually, in many, many ways. Problem is you can only buy six or seven models and that's something again is a feature of the volumetric market that because of the ways factories operate yeah. you have to buy one of six or seven models mm. in our case we simply say well whatever the architect tells you that you want and you've agreed mm. is what we will build and uh, that's what, exactly what we do, do. Uh, uh, what, what do you make of the the the, the supposed self-build revolution it's another press release that the government reissues every couple of years something i remember grant shapps being very big on, I think when he, when the when they were in opposition, I remember mm. talking to to Shaps about that, and and this come back again and again, a bit boomerang, tastic. The yeah. uh, government's obsession with self build is is what you're doing. Uh, is that going to enable a self build revolution? Do you think? No, not at all. I mean, there's a role for self build, and I absolutely think that people who want to build them their their own homes, uh, provided they do 
build something that's safe, which is where we go back to the point about yeah, about yeah. you know building control, uh, and provided they they build what is consented, I have no problem with that at all. On the contrary, people who say who say I want to put my own labour, my own time, my own energy into building my own home, I can't think of anything that would be more satisfying. But no, ours is it would be wrong to say that we address that market. What we can do, as I say, which is very unusual in the MMC space, is that we will build whatever you want. So unlike uh, the volumetrics, uh, who can really only build volume, uh, because otherwise the whole point of the factory becomes completely financially untenable, hmm. we can actually deliver something at a very good price. We say we were, first of all, considerably cheaper than the conventional build, and certainly uh, able to compete on absolutely equal terms of the volumetric differences, we can make every house different, if you like. Mm. Remember a very senior friend in the property in the resi market saying to me, uh, hey, Steve, you can build one house, can't you? I said, yes, of course, that's the point. What is it, 5,000 square feet, 10,000, 20,000? We can do all of that. It's not mm. a problem at all. Now, that's quite unusual because you can't say that to some of the people in the volumetric space. That just isn't their model. Mm. And that's not to be critical because there is a, each of these new methods of construction actually have their place in the modern market. If they can be greener than conventional construction, avoid the amount of wet trades that um, will take an age to build in the way that the, you know, we built the Great Wall of China, it really is hard, isn't it? When you think about construction, there is no activity that I can think of where we're using the same methodology to build a house in the 21st century that's the same as the one we used, the Chinese used and the Egyptians used in centuries before, mm. you know, before Christ. And it's an interesting proposition. I looked at volumetric. Probably why these companies are so successful. Yeah, well, I, I, I looked at the Marches history of construction volumetric. Exactly, uh, Sorry? Going in the right direction, are they? Well, I mean, the, the really interesting thing is that your average uh, construction company is making tiny margins. I mean, you look at some of the, the quoted businesses yeah. and you see margins of, you know, one, one and a half percent. Uh, you have to have huge turnover to generate anything like a sensible profit. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, coming back to small margins, let's maybe end where we began. What, what do you see is happening over the next few months politically obviously it's a bit a bit dangerous to do these things when you're not broadcasting live because the land might well have changed significantly in the days it's gonna take us to to, to engineer and produce this uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll try and be very quick but what are you expecting are you expecting the government's margin to be eroded further are you expecting change and if you had to pick a successor to to boris johnson who, who would your tail be pinned on the back of uh well two things i mean one is that um we're recording this uh, a couple of hours before boris johnson will face prime minister's questions on the issue of did you or did you not you know attend this party which was patiently outside the regulations when other people were being fined uh, for doing modest you know, things that were against the regulations and the regulations were prohibiting you from actually being with your loved ones in their dying hours or even at their funerals. I mean, this is, you know, that's the real charge. And by the time you're listening to this, you've probably, you know, found out the answer. But I'll tell you what the process will be. If 54 
current Conservative members of Parliament write to the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, and say, we hereby call for, or I as an individual, uh, hereby call for an election for leader of the party, then the chairman of the 22 will go to the Prime Minister and he will say, Prime Minister, I have the necessary numbers and it's my solemn duty to advise you that your options are either to fight an election for the leadership or indeed perhaps do the sensible thing and resign. And we don't know how that'll play out. And even when this is broadcast in a few days' time, nobody will quite know because Mm. I suspect this will take a few months. But I do think we're now at a point where Boris has really run out of road. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, he's he's a hard man to write off. He no doubt still has support. That would be very unreasonable if there weren't some support for him. But all of the polling... All of the sort of public evidence, um, I think all those people who I talk to in Parliament now, and I've obviously got many, many friends in Parliament, see many of them a lot, I think says, no, no, enough already. Time for somebody else. Who? Well, my personal choice will be Jeremy Hunt. If he puts himself forward, I'll vote for him as I did last time because I think that the party and the country, more to the point, uh, longs for some just sensible, stable honest government led by somebody with some integrity and with some clear plan who can turn up at an international conference without looking like some sort of joke, who um, trades a quip for a serious policy line. Uh, You remember Churchill, again, Boris's great favourite, used to say of Attlee, uh, what was it, um, two that I remember, one was uh, uh, an empty taxi drew up at the House of Commons and Mr Attlee got out. And what was the other thing? Ah, yes, Mr Attlee, a modest man with much to be modest about, you know? (laughs) Um, Attlee himself, of course, when he defeated Churchill in 1945 and in 1950, actually penned a wonderful little clary hue, which I remember, and it goes, um, there were few who thought him a starter, many who thought themselves smarter. But he ended PM, CH, and OM, an Earl, and a Knight of the Garter. And I think says it all. Maybe it's time for somebody slightly less showy, slightly less spectacular, slightly less casual with la verite, and somebody who can actually take this country forward. Uh, I think um, that's probably where my money will be. Well, there's the key to levelling up. Stephen Norris, thank you very much for your time this morning. Great to see you. Fabulous to see you looking so well and, and some fantastic and amazing insights there. Stephen Norris, former Conservative Cabinet Minister, Chairman of Soho Estates, founder at Future Built UK, uh, an all-round big, big brain for anyone in infrastructure and property. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, you can catch future propcasts on Spotify, Apple, please stay tuned to propertyweek.com and we'll see you again soon.